0: me a calm, a thankful heart from every murmur free, the blessings of your grace impart and let me live for thee. Let the sweet hope that you are mine, my life and death attend, your presence through my journey shine and crown my journey's end, amen. The person that wrote that was a woman named Anne Steele. She would be born in 1716 and she would die in 1779 at the age of 63 years old. You listen to that song or the words to that song, and you say, Well, man, she must have had a tremendous positive upbringing in life. Her father was a preacher, which could possibly be good or bad, I'm not sure. We have preacher's kids. But he was a preacher in Broughton, England. At the age of 14, she would put her Lord on in baptism. And she would begin to demonstrate very soon a gift that she had for writing. But not long after she had become a Christian, misfortune began to strike. Her mother would die in her teen years, and as a teenager, after her mother had passed away, she would fall from a horse, which would render her permanently invalid. Just hours before her wedding ceremony, her fiancé drowned in the river while he was bathing. And this painful incident probably gave rise to the song i just got through reading, a song that's very uplifting, a song that's filled with hope, a song that's positive. That song is entitled, Whatever of Earthly Bliss. She would spend most of her days in quiet seclusion of her father's house. She was described as a cultured, pious, and beautiful woman. Her father posted a note in his diary dated November in 1757 when she was 41 years old. He said, Nanny sent part of her composition to London to be printed. I entreat a gracious God who enabled and stirred her up to such a work to make it useful and keep her humble. And per- perhaps it was that emphasis that he put on to keep her humble that compelled her nickname Nanny to write under a pen name known as Theodosia. The proceeds of all her works were donated to charity. Anne Steele would never marry and her already feeble health was aggravated by the shock of her father's death in 1769, just two years before or ten years before her passing. Despite her trials, Anne Steele would write 144 hymns and 34 psalm versions. She published poems and subjects chiefly devotional in two volumes in 1760 and a third was produced after her death. Her hymns received wide acceptance and her poems were reprinted in America more than a century after her passing. She was one of the great hymnal writers of Christendom. I read stories like Ann Steele or Fanny Crosby. I read stories and we sing songs out of this this hymnal that we have. And what I enjoy is sometimes going back to see the background of some of these songs. Because those songs, even though they uplift and they inspire... When you read the background of many of them, it's filled with tragedy and misfortune. And you wonder how in the world can people write so positive prose in poems that would eventually put into songs? How do they do that amidst difficult circumstances and yet? with the struggle and the storm and the pain, still pin words that inspire us, that give us hope, that keeps us from looking here and gets us to looking up there from where our hope truly resides. It's kind of like one fella said to his buddy. He says... George, how's the world treating you? And George's a Christian. He said, well, the world isn't treating me any good, but he says, isn't God good? And that's true, isn't it? This life can throw you some curves. This life can cause your apple cart to be turned upside down. But let me tell you, folks, God is always good. And God works in two ways. either determines things to happen or He allows things. Things to happen. Paul, writing from a jail cell about 61, 62 A.D., would write one of the most positive letters that history has. It's called the book of Philippians. We started this study a couple of weeks ago, and today I want to finish up the introduction by taking a look at some things that Paul will say. You know, Paul didn't have it easy. All you got to do is just open up your Bible to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and you'll see Paul, he had it tough as a Christian. Things were not easy. Faced death on several occasions, stoning, being thrown out of cities, being put in jail, not knowing what his outcome was going to be. I mean, he just lived a tough life. It wasn't easy being a Christian. And you say, well, that's not the way it's supposed to be for Christians. It's supposed to be easy. We're children of God. God never promised our road in this life to be easy. As a matter of fact, Jesus warned his disciples, in the world you're going to have what? Trouble. But keep your faith and your trust in me. I can give you the peace that passes all understanding." Even in the midst of the storm, I can give it to you. Too many people look at happiness based upon their circumstances. And I will not deny when circumstances in my life are the way that I want them to be, you can't tell me I'm not happy. (laughs) When my wife always treats me like I feel like I deserve, I'm a happy camper. When I have the things that I want, guess what I am? Happy. Go ahead and say it. That's right. And worry, I don't have any worries if I got no problems. Now, let me ask you. If you base your happiness or, quote, unquote, your joy on those four things, always lining up, are you going to be happy or unhappy? Because I'll guarantee you, there's very few times in my life where all four of those line up, especially when it comes to my wife. <laughs> just kidding, sweetie. Sorry. Just, that was just a joke. Kind of lighten things up a little bit. But that's what people do. People base their joy, their happiness, based on happen chances. In other words, if the chances are just that the circumstances are right, People are treating me right. I've got the things that I have and I've got nothing to worry about. Ask me how I'm doing today and I'll tell you, man, it's a good day. Happy! But very seldom do I have all four things going on at the same time. How about you? That makes my life, probably most of the time, what? Unhappy. Matter of fact, can make me so unhappy that I get cynical about life, critical about people, and get down because I don't have what I want, and get frustrated, and then I worry. (laughs) How about you? Do you worry? You get anxious about things? Now be honest. If there was ever a man who could have had that type of attitude, it was Paul. Just read the biography on his life. That could have been Paul. But that's not what Paul says in the book of Philippians. That's not how Paul lived his life. He said in Philippians chapter 4 verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And if you missed it the first time, again, let me repeat it. Rejoice in the Lord. And folks, that is the only place to find true happiness and joy is in Jesus It's the only place. Oh, I'm not saying that people who are outside of Jesus don't experience temporary joy. But only Christians, in spite of what they experience, in spite of the suffering, in spite of the storm, can still experience true joy. Like Ann Steele. Like Fanny Crosby. How can they do that? It's because of who they know and what they know about the person that they know. Don't ask me to repeat that. That's how it's done. You see, my joy and my happiness is based on a relationship. It's based on, as Paul will say, an obsession. We talked about Paul's obsession last week, didn't we? He was obsessed with Jesus. At one time, as Saul, he tried to destroy the way. He tried to destroy the followers of Jesus. He wanted to eradicate that name from society. But once he met the man on the road to Damascus, once he got to see the resurrected Lord, his whole life was turned upside down and changed completely. Once his obsession was Judaism, the law. Now his obsession was Jesus, the Messiah. And that obsession led him to make a profession about the man he loved, the man that he was dedicated to, and the man he was obsessed about. As a matter of fact, he was so obsessed that when he looked back over his life and the pain and the suffering that he went through physically, emotionally, sometimes spiritually, you know what he would say about that? Those tough times, those storms, all they were doing was getting my body ready for a greater weight of glory. I don't know what you're going through. Some of you I do. Some of you I don't. You know what you're going through. Are you giving that to your obsession? Are you still able to make your profession as Paul did? And you say, well, what profession did Paul make? We're going to take a look at Philippians. All four chapters in this lesson, very briefly. Then we're going to go back, we're going to talk about the book of Philippians. But in the book of Philippians chapter 1, chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, listen to what Paul says. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my change, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. He's saying, my, because Jesus is my purpose, I profess Jesus wherever I go. He's my, he's my obsession. And he's the purpose for the reason why I, even in chains, can be so positive about my life. That's what he says. I had a friend of mine. His name was Michael Mater. Michael was a zealous person for Jesus. Him and another buddy of his went to Turkey a Muslim country, and they would try to go there to teach and to spread the good news about Jesus. They had to stay on the run. They couldn't stay in one place very long. At times, that one time, they were cast in prison, was able to get released, and they continued to preach after being warned by the Turkish, Turkish government, you ain't supposed to do that. Why would anybody do something like that? Because they were obsessed with Jesus. And they believed with all of their heart because of their obsession and their relationship with Christ. And what Christ had done for them, they needed to go around and talk about him, even in a Muslim country. But Michael was also the type of person, he was working on this old van that he would drive to the school of preaching where I went. He was working on that thing and he'd put some gas into the carburetor to try to get it fired off because it was cold that morning when I got out there. What happened was that it sparked a fire and it burned his arms a little bit. So they had to take him to the emergency room. You know what Mike does? He's not been moaning and complaining about his situation and what fire took place and what an idiot he said he might have been or whatever the case may be. He wasn't complaining and moaning. You know what he was doing? While the nurses and the doctors were attending to his burns, you know what he's doing? He's preaching Jesus. He's talking about Christ. He's talking about the, do you know Christ? He says, he he began to teach them the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The gospel. While he's sitting there in pain, it's what he's doing. What causes a person to do something like that? Obsession. And Paul says, I want to let you know. He says, while I was in prison, held under the guard, he says, as a result, it became clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. <laughs> Most people want to go around and keep their Christianity secret. Shh, don't let anybody know. You know, you don't want to stick out like a sore thumb. You don't want to have any jokes made about you, be made fun of. Not Paul. When you're obsessed with Jesus, you can't help but talk about him wherever you are. Whether it's a store, whether it's at school, whether it's on your job. Well, I just don't do that. I don't want to stick out. Listen, folks, Christians are not secret agents. You know, I find it interesting that the world doesn't have any problem expressing their obsessions. Do it boldly, gladly. But for us Christians, we think that it's appropriate. When I was growing up, I was told you don't talk about two things. You don't talk about religion. You don't talk about politics. But I found out the world doesn't live by the same rule. They'll talk about their religion. Oh, it's not Christianity. It's idolatry and paganism and ungodliness They don't mind talking about it. They don't mind telling the bad jokes. They don't mind putting it on TV, movies, and in in writing. Then why should you and I feel that we need to keep ours under wraps? Because we are the only people that have got the good news. We are the only people that have got it. And Paul says, I'm going to let you know that these guards and the whole palace guards, while I'm sitting here in prison, know that I'm in chains because of the person I'm obsessed with. Remember Acts 16, when the church at Philippi has been established? They converted that girl, had cast out that spirit that gave her the ability to foretell the future, that these businessmen had had taken in as a slave, was making money hand over fist off of. That's the reason why Paul and Silas get thrown in jail. And what do they begin to do? Sing. Do you think it's a sad song they're singing or a Glad song they're singing. Glad song. Because Paul said what? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. And so they're singing 728B. Well, it used to be 728B. It's not 728B anymore. But our God, he is alive. You didn't know that come from Paul, did you? No, I'm just kidding. Him and, Paul, him and Silas are singing a song because they have got their obsession whether by life or by death we're going to be fine but there's a jailer in there and he wants to do what? because when the singing's going on and praising God's going on what happens? an earthquake jail cell doors open up and that jailer is he singing a sad song or a glad song? he's singing a sad song what does he want to do? he wants to die He's going to fall on his sword and kill himself. Here, you, here is the difference between Christianity and the world. Christianity says, you go ahead and take me. That's fine. I'm in jail. I'm suffering. No problem. My God is still alive. And the jailer stands for the world. One says, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. The other one says, I just want to die. Which person do you want to be? So, listen, folks, you can have the, obs- if you've got the obsession, that's the positive hope that you have in any and every circumstance. But you get into chapter two, and Paul says not only was his obsession and his profession that Jesus was his purpose for life, it's what caused him to have a good day getting up and a good day coming home and putting his head on the pillow. You say, well, a good day. He suffered, didn't he? Yeah. But who was he suffering for? Jesus. And man, that puts you in good company, Jesus said. Blessed are you when people say all manner of evil against you, mistreat you. Because on account of me. That puts you in the same group as the prophets of God that went before. That's pretty good company. Many of those prophets end up in that hall of faith of Hebrews chapter 11. And so in the book of chapter 2 of the book of Philippians, Paul will say not only is Jesus my purpose for living, but he's my pattern for living as well. Let me ask you a question. Why do you think the way that you think? Why do you behave the way that you behave? Why do you do things a certain way? Is it possibly because you followed another person's pattern? Every one of us has been shaped by somebody or some buddies. The first people we come in contact with is our parents. And they begin to shape and to mold us. Not only do we have genetics that cause us to be short because of their genetics... Dad's five foot one, my mom's four foot ten. Didn't have a chance. But we also take on their mannerisms. I remember answering the phone when my dad was still alive. And they thought I was my dad because I had the same type of voice that my dad had. They couldn't make the distinction. When you take a look at things that we become, things that we like, a lot of that has to do with those that mentored us, that had an impact on our lives. It might have been not only our parents, it might have been a coach, it might have been a teacher, it might have been a friend, whatever the case may be. We are shaped by our environment a lot of times. We become who we are by our environment, by the people that we're around. You want to think good thoughts? Get around people who talk good thoughts who watch things that present good, positive. You want to start stinking thinking? Get around people who've got that stinking thinking from the neck up, you know? Who talk dirty. (laughs) Who don't mind little foul words coming out of their mouths every, every fourth word. Who don't mind telling the dirty jokes. Who don't mind going to certain places that are not suitable for a child of God to walk into. You get around them long enough, and I'll guarantee you, they eventually rub off on you, whether positively or negatively. Our lives are shaped. My question for you is this. Who is shaping your life? Who do you hold up as your hero, your mentor, your biggest influence in life? Because those are the people that shape and mold us. Those are the people that get us thinking a certain way. I'd like to suggest to you, Paul said, let me tell you, Jesus was my mentor. I am what I am by the grace of God. The problem in our culture today is that people tend to choose things that are not healthy models to follow. It might be a sports figures. And I'm not saying all sports figures are negative. Let me say that starting off. But there are some sports figures that our kids have got posters on their walls that they're just not good examples. They're just not. It could be people in the movies. You see, we live in a sin-sick society that's very self-centered, that's arrogant, that seeks to do one thing. That's look after number one. Beating their chest, glorifying themselves. And Paul says, let me tell you, my pattern is Jesus. He was my model. As a matter of fact, Paul will say this in the book of Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. Have this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Man, what if, what if we had a society, a culture, where people looked out for your good rather than their own? What kind of a culture would that be like? Each of you should look not to, only to your own interests, he says we could, he's not saying we can't look to our own interests, but also look to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That's his pattern. That's his model. That's his mentor. Well, what kind of an attitude did Jesus had? Who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself, made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. How many people today want to be a slave to others, a servant to others? How many people want to bend the knee so that they can minister to others? no. That's not our culture, is it? It's all about what you can do for me. Our world says greatness is based upon how many serve you in the heaven. And Jesus says that's not true. As far as heaven is concerned, greatness is based upon how many you serve. For Jesus said, He that is greatest among you shall be your servant. And Paul says, that is what my mentor, Jesus, taught me. That's what I pattern my life after. Now, I've got two more points to cover, but my time's up, all right? So next Sunday, we will finish up the introduction to the book of Philippians, all right? But would you sing with me a song? Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Easy.